This is a bad omen. There we go. That'll work better. Well, glad you guys are here with us tonight. We are beginning a series uh, in the book of 1 Thessalonians tonight. And uh, this is something we're going to be studying all spring. And a lot of what we're going to study tonight is what I would uh, actually cover, call sort of introductory matters uh, before we dive into the book more deeply in the coming uh, coming weeks. We're going to get to know some of the players in the story. We're going to get to know a little bit about the history and the context of uh, Thessalonica. Um, and uh, we're, But most importantly, what we are going to see is how the story of God's work in the church of Thessalonica helps us understand God's purpose for us. And I am personally really excited about studying the book of Thessalonians because, well, I need this book. I need it to speak to me. If you'd asked me a couple of months ago as the elders planned, I would have said, we need this book because it's going to be great for the church. But as I've been studying it for myself, as I've been preparing for this sermon series, I've realized I need this book as much as anybody in this church. I need this book because it is over and over again a picture of how the gospel is at work. How the gospel is at work in them and through them in their lives. And I realize deep in my heart, that's what I want. That's what I need. But when I evaluate my life, I think I don't have as much of the gospel in me as I want. I don't see the truth of the gospel changing me. The joy of the gospel filling me. The hope of the gospel strengthening me. Or the priorities of the gospel shaping me the way that I want. And so I need this book. And I'm guessing that I'm not alone. We titled this series, if you look on your sermon card or in the bulletin, we titled this series uh, based on chapter 1, verse 5 of uh, 1 Thessalonians. Where it says, because our gospel came to you. And this is what we're going to explore. What does it mean when the gospel comes to us? What impact does it make? How does it change us? John Stott, the British theologian and commentator, says this is what we should look for when we read the book of 1 Thessalonians. He says, what is of particular interest is the interaction which the apostle portrays between the church and the gospel. He shows how the gospel creates the church and how the church spreads the gospel. How the gospel shapes the church and how the church seeks to live a life worthy of the gospel. So that's what I hope we're going to see, is this interaction between what we're called to be as a church and the gospel. So my desire this evening is twofold for us. One is that we have a better understanding of God's calling on us as his church. And secondly, that we would live with more expectation that God really would work in us and through us. And we're going to be looking at the very first verse of 1 Thessalonians, so 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 1, and then we're going to move over to the book of Acts and spend some time there because that's where we actually get the story of the history of how this church came into being. So that's where we're going. Let me pray for us before we continue. Lord, we um, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have 
spoken, Lord, to us through it. Lord, thank you that you used men and women writing in different times, uh, Lord, to speak to us. God, I pray that you would tonight speak to us through this word. I pray, Lord, that we would see how much we need this book. Lord, how much we need you at work in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you want to turn with me, page 986 in the Pew Bibles, or to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Uh, as I said, we're actually going to be reading only verse 1 in terms of what, we're going to, what I'm going to talk with you about tonight. But I'm going to read the whole chapter just to give you a little bit of context and a little bit of where we're going. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And so, <clears throat> so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we not need say anything. For they themselves report uh, concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God, and to wait for his son Jesus from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So the first question we want to look at tonight is, what is God's calling on his church? As we look at the, at the church in Thessalonica, what is God's calling on it? And what I want to put before you tonight is that God's calling is that we would be a church centered on the gospel. Now, I've used that word probably 15 times already. And some of you may be going, what does he mean by that? What is he saying? Well, let's look and see what Paul does with it. Look in, at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. You see it in verse 5, right? He says, because our gospel came to you, and then he goes on and he describes how it came to them and the effect that it had. Now, if you kept looking, you would see that he uses the gospel, word gospel again. He uses it in two, chapter 2, verse 2, and in chapter 2, verse 4, chapter 2, verse 8, chapter 2, verse 9, and chapter 3, verse 2. So throughout... A huge swath of this book, Paul is using this word over and over again. But he uses it as shorthand. He never actually defines it in the whole book. He never actually says what he means by that. And so, we need a definition, don't we? Well, gospel simply means good news. You probably know that from the Greek. It just means good news. But what exactly, when Paul is using the good news, what is he saying about it? Well, we as the elders at Trinity have actually been wrestling with, we've been talking about God's call on our church to be a gospel-centered church, and we've 
wrestles with the question, what is the gospel? Let me try to be as succinct and clear as I possibly can. We'll see how we do in this, but uh, let me give you a definition of what, what, what Paul means by the gospel. The gospel is the message of the transforming grace of God in Jesus Christ. That is, the gospel is the good news that in Jesus Christ, God has come to reconcile sinners by his grace and renew the whole world for his glory. Okay, let me unpack that a little bit. God so loved his people so that even after they had rejected them, even after they had refused to honor him, acknowledge him as God, or worship him as he deserved, he would not abandon them to the judgment and the death that they deserved because of that rebellion against their creator. But instead, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die in their place so that God could forgive us of the sin of rebellion against him and call us into a renewed relationship with him. And he did this not only with individual people and souls, but that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ was calling was, was the starting point of God renewing his whole creation so that one day he will make the whole creation renewed in its relationship to him. And this is the good news of the gospel. This is what God calls his church to make the center. Now, some of you have been here for the last year. Some of you haven't. And if you haven't, you'll pick up a little history about our church in the next two minutes. But if you've been here for the, next, for the last year, do you remember what we preached on? What, what were we preaching on last January? Anyone? Galatians. Right. We are preaching through the book of Galatians. Why? Because the Galatians goes back to the mechanics of the gospel. It says you cannot make yourself right with God by how well you do your religious life. There is nothing you can do that is sufficient to make yourself pleasing to God on your own. It is only by abandoning that self-justifying effort and throwing ourselves by faith on the mercy and grace of God and particularly the work that Jesus Christ did what we could not do. He lived a perfect life, he died for our sins and he rose from the dead so that we might then be brought into this relationship with God that we were just talking about. That's why we preach through the book of Galatians, so that we would remember these basic mechanics of the gospel. And from there we moved on to what? The book of Deuteronomy. Do you remember? The book of Deuteronomy where God talks about God's calling his people into a covenant with them. He says, I want you to come and be my people and I will be your God. And I will give you my law to teach you how to live as my people. But what this book really showed us is how fickle our hearts are. And how inconstant our faith is. And how easily we stumble and fall. How hard it is. In fact, how impossible it is to actually keep the law that God gave us. And so it sets us up. It sets us up to long for a redeemer that then God sends in Jesus Christ. And then, do you remember what we preached on this past fall? We preached on Hosea. The prophet speaking for God, talking about God's relentless love for his wayward people. We saw that our hearts are like the hearts of the Israelites. We don't love God the way we ought to. He is not the object of our, of our greatest affection. Instead, 
we go and run after all sorts of other lovers. We're spiritually prostituting ourselves and adulterating ourselves by worshiping all sorts of other things and trusting in all sorts of other things. And in the midst of it, the message, God still loves you. God is coming for you. God will send a redeemer to win back your heart. So we spent the whole last year preaching about the gospel so that we can not only know the mechanics of the gospel, but hopefully so that we would see how much we need the gospel and how beautiful it is. How, what the splendor of what God has done for us in Christ really is. This is the good news, and this is the thing that is meant to define and direct and drive and sustain our church. This is what we want to center it on. And that's why we're studying 1 Thessalonians. If I give you an outline of the whole book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1 is about how the gospel came to the church and the impact that it made in their lives. Chapters 2 and 3 is Paul describing his own heart, his, his gospel-centered heart in his ministry towards these people. He's describing what it looks like to have a gospel heart for other people. And then verses 4 and 5, Paul is instructing them out of this gospel life that God has given you. How then should you live? And he addresses lots of particular and specific and concrete things that, that God wants to bring transforming energies into so that we can actually live out a life that's consistent with the gospel that God has put in us. This is what the book of 1 Thessalonians is all about. And even in chapter 1, verse 1, look with me there, because we're going to actually look at this verse now. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Most of this is really generic, like what you would see on the outside of an envelope of a letter. It is from these guys, Paul and his compatriots, Silvanus and Timothy. And it is to the church in Thessalonica, and his message, his greeting is grace and peace to you, which is a lot like saying, hey, how's it going? Um, it, it might mean more than that, but I think a lot of it is just that. But do you see the piece that I didn't mention yet? Paul puts in this unique phrase. It's not used anywhere else in his letters and in his greeting. He says, you are the church in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Why does he say that? Well, first, just to clarify, when he uses the word church here, the Greek word, it's, it's ecclesia, it's what we get ecclesiastical from. Um, all it means is gathering or assembly. You could use it in all sorts. It was used commonly in, in the day for secular gatherings, people who watch a sports event or people who gather for a political lecture. These would all be ecclesia. What Paul is doing is he is reminding these people right from the very start you are a gathering in God. It is God who has gathered you. And not just God generically, but specifically God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What is he reminding us when he says that? He's saying that God has given them an identity and a purpose because he has saved them through his son Jesus Christ. God the Father has made them a new people. By the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. 
And then he goes on and, and he, he says, not is it just through Jesus, but it's through the one who we call the Lord Jesus. And therefore, he is meant to be the one to whom we orient our whole life around. We make him the one that we serve. We make him the one that we seek to please in all that we do. It is the lordship of Jesus Christ over all creation that they are to proclaim from the rooftops with their mouths and with their lives. And so Paul says, you are the church in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You are to center your life on this God and the, the message of, about this God, the gospel that he has brought to you. For Paul, the gospel is about God and God has given us the gospel. There's no distinction between them, but they're a hole in his thought. The gospel is the message that God has given us about what he has done. So friends, we need to ask ourselves a question, don't we? What's the center of our lives? You know, it's really easy for me to make the center of my life the daily responsibilities of ministry and family. It's easy for me to make phone calls and paying the bills, preparing a Bible study, planning a meeting, playing with my children, mowing my lawn. These are the things that fill my life. And it's so easy for that to be the center of my life. And I do them without the gospel and without God. Maybe for some of you, it's working in a lab. The assignments and tests and papers. It might be you're going to work every day in the demands of your boss. Whatever it is. Maybe you're like me. Because it's so easy for my life to become so horizontally focused that I lose my connection with God who has called me in the gospel. And you know what the result is? My life becomes burdensome. It becomes burdensome without the gospel. It's all about duty and self-effort. I become joyless in my serving. I become lacking in love in my ministry. I become frustrated that I never end check off the last box on my to-do list. Any of you guys ever feel this way? When the gospel is the center, when the gospel is right there in the middle of my life, life is not any easier, but there is a purpose in it. My responsibilities are not less, but there is another power at work within me. And it frees me from seeing them as duty and drudgery. It frees me from the frustration of things that I can't do. My responsibilities can become joys because I see God is at work in my life and in everything that I'm doing. And it doesn't mean that God makes everything just work. But what it does mean is that I know that my life is about him and serving him. Not simply getting these things done. And even in the worst of suffering, with the gospel at the center, I can live with hope and confidence of God's present love for me and good purposes for me. And this is what I hope to be true as I put the gospel in the center of my life. And maybe I hope for you as well. So God has called us to be a gospel-centered church. 
But I think there's more in the story of the Thessalonian church for us to learn. And the second thing that I want to impress on you that I hope you'll take home tonight is this. That the story of the Thessalonians is given so that we would expect God to work powerfully through the gospel. Now why do I say this? Well, in order to do this we have to tell the story of Thessalonica. And in order to tell the story we need to turn to the book of Acts. So grab your Bibles... Um, turn with me to page 926, 54, something like that. Uh, 924 is actually where we'll start. Um, because we're going to look at the story of how the gospel got to Thessalonica and what happened when it got there. Um, in Acts 15, starting in verse 40, this is the beginning of what is commonly called Paul's second missionary journey. Paul uh, was sent out from Antioch. Um, here's your you might want to look up for a minute your mental map here's Antioch here's Jerusalem over here here's the Mediterranean Sea right Antioch into Turkey am I doing this right or am I backwards okay so I thought into Asia Minor which is now modern Turkey okay and Paul was going up there to preach and to encourage the churches that he had already started the last time on his first missionary journey. So he was going back through wanting to encourage them and then hopefully to spread the gospel more in Asia Minor. Um, and this was his purpose. And by Acts 16, verse 3, Paul has assembled a team to go with him. He's got a guy named Silas or Silvanus, as it's said in the beginning of 1 Thessalonians. It's the same name. It's just a Greek Hebrew thing. Um, but uh, so Silvanus and or Silas is his partner in this ministry. And along the way, they pick up a third guy, Timothy, who's a younger man, prob- uh, a convert, um, who, who joins up with them in the middle of this. And they're traveling around wanting to encourage these churches. And Paul says, I want to go where the gospel isn't. And he starts to go in these places, and God has another plan for him. God, said, God redirects them. He starts closing some doors and saying, no, you can't go here. And he says, says, no, don't go to this city and don't stay in this place. Keep moving. And then God comes to Paul in a vision. And he has a vision of a man from Macedonia. Now, where the heck is Macedonia? Well, okay, so here's Asia Minor, Turkey, right? So the next thing over the Bosphorus into Europe, above the Aegean Sea, which is here, this is where Macedonia is. And underneath Macedonia down here is the Greek peninsula. So Athens and Corinth and Old Sparta, which isn't anymore at this point, um, is down here. So, so there's your map, mental map. One day we'll get it up on the overheads, but, you know, for now, there it is. Hopefully it's stuck in your brain. Um, <clears throat> so, so, so he has a vision of a man from Macedonia. And the man says, come over and help us. So Paul and his companions, they respond to this, and they get on a boat, and they sail up into, they see a little city called Neapolis. They get off. They go to the Philippi, which is the capital city of Macedonia. And they preach the gospel. And when you read the rest of Acts 16, it's this great story of what God does. It's really cool. They get into jail. There's an earthquake. and Anyway, it's really fun. Um, but, um, but God does amazing things there. And then when they're done there, they leave. And the next city they go to is Thessalonica. 
So now we come to Acts 17, verses 1 through 9, where, which is the story of how the gospel came there. But before we dive into that, and I know some of you are like, come on, when are we going to get there? We're going to get to the story, but, but I have to tell you a little bit more about Thessalonica. As a history major, I love this stuff. When you, when you study things, you want to dig into the context. Tell me the history for the last 500 years so you can get a sense of what is this city like and what is it about? So if you're not like that, bear with me. If you're like that, let's go for a ride. And hopefully you'll be a little more interested in history by the time we're done with this. Um, Paul came to Thessalonica when it was a city that was a little over 400 years old. Which is, incidentally, older than almost every city in the United States. With the exception, maybe, of St. Augustine. Um, its location was perfect. It was located on a major east-west route called the Via Ignatia that connected the, the Eastern Roman Empire um, all the way over to the west. So Byzantium all the way over to a port where it'd be easy to sail to Rome. And so there's this major east-west trade route. Um, and it was right smack in the... Not only that, but you could go north from Thessalonica, an easy road over the mountains into a valley that would connect you with the Danube River. And if you know anything about European geography, the Danube River is this huge, it's the longest river in, in Europe, and it goes snakes all the way through, and you have access to all of this trade and all of this culture by going north from Thessalonica. And south, it's the Aegean Sea. It was actually on the sea. It had a naturally deep harbor, which if you know anything about ships is really good because it means you can bring boats in and out. You don't have to worry about them running aground at low tide and those sorts of things. It was a protected harbor and it meant that they could connect by ship to all the major cities of the ancient eastern, uh, of the ancient world. So they could connect to Rome and to, to Egypt and to Carthage and to places that don't even exist today. Um, and, um, and so this city was incredibly well positioned. Imagine, it's, it's kind of like, well, now we'll, tell, we'll get there in a minute. Um, so here's a little bit about the history. The history, the city was founded by the Macedonians. Now Macedonians, like, they do exist today. Um, but for a long time in history, they haven't been a major player, right? But there are, the Macedonian people were sort of squeezed between the Roman Empire and the Greek powers for most of their existence, particularly in the ancient world, right? But this city was a Macedonian city from about 400 to about 168 BC. And 168 BC, the Romans came along and they said, enough, you are joining our empire. And they did it violently and they did it viciously. The Thessalonians fought for their independence and they lost and the Roman sanctions were harsh. They were so harsh that the economy crumbled and there was great suffering. And the Thessalonians were chastened by this. And as they rebuilt their city in the years to follow, they were committed to being faithful Roman loyalists. And they did this so successfully that by 42 BC, so 120 years later, they were actually declared a free city within the Roman Empire, which was sort of like getting most favored status in the World Trade Organization. It meant that they didn't have to house Roman soldiers. It meant that they could use their own, their own uh, currency and run their own local economy. It was a big deal, and it meant that you were an honored city in the Roman Empire. And for the Thessalonians, this allowed the city to flourish. 
and their loyalty to Rome was incredibly precious to them. In this flourishing, this city became a remarkable, a remarkably cosmopolitan city. One com commentator describes it this way. As the apostles arrived, they found themselves alongside Roman soldiers and officials, people involved in trade, Roman colonists, religious heralds, philosophers, pilgrims, and other travelers, all members of a society that had become extremely mobile. The great success of Thessalonica was due in grand part to the union of land and sea, road and port, which facilitated commerce between Macedonia and the entire Roman Empire. No other place in all of Macedonia offered the strategic advantages of Thessalonica. Now here's a question for you. This is what I was going to say earlier, but I didn't want to ruin the surprise. Can you think of a city that's on a major east-west trade route that has a major road going north from it that's on a harbor? Do you guys know any cities like that? Well, some of you may not even know this. New Haven is very much like that. We are on one of the busiest highways in, this, in the country in I-95. And I-91 is the backbone of all of New England. And if you go up far enough, you could actually get the St. Lawrence Seaway. But that might be a stretch. Um, now, the reality is shipping is not as much of a big deal here. And uh, there are dissimilarities as well as similarities. But part of what I want you to see is that New Haven is, in many ways, an incredibly cosmopolitan city that sits at a crossroads, a crossroads of the world, just like Thessalonica did. Just this week, I sat down with two different people who work with organizations in this city who work with people who come from literally all over the world. And not only literally all over the world, but particularly, they work with people that Americans tend to never go visit and have very little contact with. People from, well, Iraq is sort of an... Uh, but people, they work with Iraqis. They work with people from Myanmar, from Bhutan, from Cuba, from Indonesia, from Pakistan, and many others. The particular uh, convergence of the universities that bring people from all over the world and the status of New Haven as a refugee resettlement city means that we live in an incredibly diverse crossroads community we don't have to go to the world the world actually comes here some of you likely have come from other parts of the world to come and be a part of the life of the city of new haven willingly or unwillingly you're here um, and god has brought you here and you know not only is it that kinds of crossroads for the world but it's a crossroads in lots of other ways too if you walk 10 blocks north south Wait, north, south, east, and west, out of this building, you would find yourself in an incredibly, in four very different neighborhoods. You would find the diversity to be racial. You will find African American communities and Hispanic communities and old Italian communities and the, the mixed um, university community that tends to be significantly both Asian and Caucasian in its makeup. If you go in four different directions, that's probably what you would find. You would find incredible diversities of socioeconomic uh, 
status. You would find incredible diversity of education levels. You'd find incredible diversity in all these different ways. And our church actually sits in the middle of this. Have you ever thought about this? Our church doesn't have a neighborhood that we're a part of. And, and for whatever reason, God has brought us here where our neighbors are a parking lot so that we could be a crossroads place where we can reach out and see a gospel impact where people could come from all this diversity to be a part of it. Think about this. Faithful preaching in this medium-sized city in the country could have an impact far outstripping its size. We'd have the potential to reach the whole world. And so as we think about what God has called our church to be, we want to be intentional about this. We want to be sure that when we gather together, we don't gather because we are like one another. But we gather together because the gospel is something that we think is worth gathering around. We want to bring together a church that says, that, that is so striking that an outsider might come in and say, what brings these people together? And the answer would be nothing. Nothing brings these people together except they worship Jesus. Except the message of the gospel. This is a part of the stewardship and the purpose of our church. This is how I think it would look for us to live out being a gospel-centered church in our context which is like what we see in Thessalonica. So, going back to Thessalonica, this is very much a city like that that Paul and Silas and Timothy came to. Probably they came in about 48 or 49 AD. And let's look and actually read the story in Acts 17, briefly. Um, Now, when they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, there are two other cities between Philippi and Thessalonica. They passed through those two Probably just stayed there on the nights on the 100-mile journey from one to the other. Um, then they came to a synagogue. This was Paul's practice, is that he would start um, by going to the place where God's word was already being read. And when you look through, you see, I'm not going to read the whole thing. Um, I'm just going to walk us through it. But what you see is Paul comes and he, he says, I want to reason from you. I want to explain to you that the Old Testament says... That there is a Christ, which is just the Greek version of Messiah. That there is one that God is going to anoint and send to be a savior of his people. But But Paul's argument is that this Christ must suffer and die. And this was not a commonly held view in the Jewish world at that time. So Paul is saying this is what must happen. And then he's coming alongside that and he's saying, and this Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, this man who walked the earth. He did that. He suffered and he died and he rose again. And so his message is this Jesus is the Christ, the promised one of the Old Testament. This is what God has now done. The one that the Jewish world has been waiting for has now arrived. So believe. Align yourself with him. Make him the one that you worship. And This gospel message had an incredible impact. It had an incredible impact in the diversity of people. Even even here we see the diversity in Thessalonica being played out. Because not only did some Jews were persuaded and believed. 
but then some others, the ESV calls them devout Greeks. Other Bible translations would call them God-fearers. These are people who are not ethnically Jewish, but who would go to the synagogue because they were interested in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who hadn't been circumcised and converted to Judaism, but who wanted to know more. And so these Greeks and maybe Macedonians, God-fearers, were also persuaded and believed. And not only that, but shockingly in the first century, although it wouldn't be shocking to us today, many or several prominent women in the city, that they were included in this right from the start, that this message of the gospel came to everybody and was for all people. And so the gospel comes in and has this incredible um, Incredible impact where it starts to... And these people then join up with Paul. It says they joined up with him. And then joined up with him not only by hosting him and, and sitting under his teaching, but they even participated with him in their ministry. Well, that was the positive impact. There was a negative impact as well, wasn't there? If you look with me in verse six, 5. But the Jews were jealous... Jewish authorities didn't feel like this was a good thing going on there. And so, um, what did they do? Well, um, what they did is they uh, went down to the local marketplace and they found the rent-a-mob kiosk and they paid their money. And No, I'm kidding. But um, so it's fascinating. Translations just throw out great words for the, these are, these are layabouts. They're lay, louts. They're uh, dishonorable men. They're, basically, these men would gather um, in, in, in the marketplace every day. And if you needed a mob, you could just go down and say, hey, you know, if I pay you a shekel, will you come, you know, throw a riot for me? And that's basically what they did. They, they hired a mob and, and then went after Paul and his companions. And when they couldn't find Paul and his companions, you know who they found? They found the new converts, Jason and his, and his friends, the new believers. And they dragged these new believers out of their houses and in front of the magistrates and laid this incredible accusation before them. Look with me in verse 8. This is what it says. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. It's talking about Paul and Silas and Timothy. And Jason has received them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Now these are striking accusations. Remember how important Fidelity to Rome was for the Thessalonian culture. And they are saying, these men are preaching another king. And now here's the tricky thing, right? At one level, this wasn't true at all. You know from the, that the Apostle Paul, from his writings to the, to the church in Rome, advocated submission to your governmental authorities, regardless of how godly or ungodly they were. Paul was not a political activist seeking to overturn a societal structure. He he expressly said, don't do that. And yet, and yet, this gospel that Paul was proclaiming made an ultimate claim on the allegiance 
and priority of those who followed it. His call to gospel belief demanded, just as Jesus did when he walked on earth, a transfer from whatever other thing, your ethnic group, your family, your workplace, whatever other thing transferred your ultimate loyalty, your ultimate allegiance, your, even your very identity from those things now to be around Jesus. Paul said, Jesus is your king. And use the word, the Greek word basileus, which would have been used in formal Roman declarations about the emperor, for the emperor. Paul said, no, Jesus is your king. And so it's, it's not surprising that they would be open to this kind of attack. Because the gospel that Paul was proclaiming was not intentionally politically subversive. And yet by its very nature it undermined any human authority's ultimate claim to loyalty. For the gospel called them to give that only to Jesus. Another commentator talked about this transfer of loyalty in this way. Accepting the lordship of Christ would mean new priorities and loyalties for those who became disciples. It would lead to transformation of personal relationships, business and personal ethics, social structures and ambitions, new attitudes towards other religions. And it changes ways of relating to Caesar and his representatives. The Holy Spirit would progressively bring about these changes as Christians reflected together on the implications of their new life in Christ. But even the preaching of the gospel itself is disturbing to the social and political status quo wherever it is taken seriously. So even though Paul was not an activist, his gospel had incredible impact on those who received it and believed it. Reminds me of one of one of my heroes of the faith, um, Jim Elliott. Uh, he and his wife went to South America in the 1950s to be missionaries. He was martyred. He was killed by a headhunting tribe uh, who were unreached with the gospel as they sought, as he and his co-workers sought to reach out to him. A few years before he died, he wrote in his journal uh, a perspective that continues to challenge me as I think about the impact of the gospel in my life. Father, make me a crisis man, he wrote. Bring those I contact to decision. Let me not be a milepost on a single road. Make me a fork that men must turn one way or another on facing Christ in me. I know I'm not like that the way I hope, the way I want to be. But Jim Elliott was saying, let me be so full of the gospel. Let me be so full of Jesus the King that people will accuse me of being one of those who turn the world upside down. That everyone who encounters me faces this decision. And it's not because I'm trying to be aggressive or offensive or pushy. But it's because the gospel is at the center of my life. And God 
when he takes the gospel and he brings it into people's lives, it does an incredible, transforming, powerful work. It does turn our worlds upside down when the gospel really goes deep. This is seen, it seems to me, is what, what the whole account of, uh, of uh, the story of the church in, in Thessalonica is all about. Paul and Silas and Timothy came and they brought the gospel. And, and it changed people's lives. People were persuaded. People were, were moved and they were changed. In fact, as we read earlier, it says in verses 8 through 10 of chapter 1, the gospel came to you in, with such power, with such transforming power that we don't have to even talk about because everyone knows what happened among you. The word of the Lord has gone forth all throughout Macedonia, remember up here, and Achaia, down into the Greek peninsula. Everyone has heard how you receive the gospel and how you turn from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for Jesus, whom God raised from the dead, who will come and save us. This is what we should expect. Is that when the gospel comes, God is at work. And God is going to do things that turn our worlds upside down. And we should expect that in our own lives. And we should expect it in the lives of those who encounter us as a community. Whether it's inside these walls or outside these walls. As we spend our daily lives out wherever we're doing. At school, at work, at home. We should have an expectation that God will be at work powerfully through the gospel. We don't want to seek to unsettle things just to be unsettling. We don't want to change the status quo because we're bored with it. We don't want to seek to transform things simply for the sake of transformation. But the gospel, the gospel, when it be, is the center of our lives... God will use it to do all of these things. Now, I don't know all of what this is supposed to mean for my life. I don't know all of what it's supposed to mean for our church. I don't know all of what it means for New Haven. But I'm challenged to ask this question. Do I expect God to be working or have I lost faith that God will work through the gospel in ways that turn the world upside down? Just to wrap up the story, Paul and Silas and Timothy, no doubt out of love for their, these new converts, left the city. These new converts paid a guarantee that these men wouldn't come back. So Paul and Silas left. But they were so desirous to know, how is this young church without much teaching, without much leadership, how is it doing in the face of hostile mobs and, 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 uh, and, and authorities that stood against it? Paul writes later in the letter, we wanted so much, we tried again and again to get back to you, but we couldn't do it. And finally we sent Timothy. And Timothy went back to the Thessalonians and he visited with them. And then he came back. Paul said, now we live because we've heard that you are standing firm. And it's in that context that Paul wrote the letter of 1 Thessalonians. 
to encourage them, to remind them of the work of the gospel that had already been done in their lives and to call them to yet still more, to take hold of the gospel still more as they went ahead. Paul is reminding them, be a gospel-centered people, be a gospel-centered church. And that is his message, I believe, for us. And as we are seeking to be those things, we are to expect that God will do things that will turn the world upside down. So two practical ways to engage. Two practical ways to follow through. I want to invite you to join us on this journey with First Thessalonians in the, in the upcoming weeks and months. So two things. One, I want to invite you to join me in reading the book of 1 Thessalonians every day for the next 30 days. It's not that long. It's five chapters. Wouldn't take you that long. Some of you may have other Bible reading plans. And if you, you know, if you want to do that, you know, maybe do it once a week. But, but read this book. Steep yourself in this book so you get to see what God is doing in the gospel, in this church. Read this book. And if you don't have a plan, do. Join me for the next 30 days. Read it every day. And then secondly, pray. Pray that God would do a work that would turn our lives, our church, and our city upside down through this gospel together. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you that you have been merciful and gracious to give us this gospel. Lord, this good news that you have done. Oh, what a marvelous work in Christ. God, I pray that you would help us, help us, Lord, to take hold of this. Lord, we want, we want to see you at work in our lives in powerful ways. We pray that you, that you would do this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. As the music team comes up, we're going to um, respond. We're going to sing a church called um, a Church Arise and Put Your Armor On. It's, it's a, the, church, the song is actually a, a call. A call, And so I want you to think about singing this, not just to God, but to a certain extent, singing it to one another as we sing it together. As a call for us to pursue, as it talks about, Christ our captain. Pursue God's work and his plans for us. Um, if you want to sit and just sing and meditate, you can do that. If you want to stand, uh, you can do that as well. So let's sing this song together.